Please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Philippians chapter 4. This is the end of our six-week series in uh, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Um, As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him once more in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word so that we would know what we are to believe about you and what you ask of us. Father, thank you for not leaving us alone to find our way home, but for leading the way, giving us your word and your spirit. Be pleased now, Father, to show us Jesus, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Just seems like the other day, and it was just the other day that we started, uh, Philippians 4, Peace Under Pressure. I want to begin today just by reading once again, as we've done every week for the last six weeks, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think we've all heard the expression. I think most of us have probably said the expression. It takes practice. It takes practice. And and I think that's a word often used as a word of encouragement, a a word of motivation. Don't don't give up. Don't quit. It, it, It takes practice. In other words, to improve, to become proficient. It takes practice and time to learn to do it well. So in one sense, practice means doing something over and over again to improve, to get get better. Think of sports, practice. Think of um, in school, a, a practice exam, again and again and again. But there's another sense for practice as well in it. And we see that when we think of the practice of law, the practice of, of medicine. So when Paul says in verse 9, practice these things, we're going to see it as both effort 
and, and vocation. In other words, the Christian life is a practice. And the Christian life takes practice. In other words, the Christian life is on display. The Christian life requires effort. So for six weeks, we've been unpacking and exploring both the content and context, in particular of verses 4 through 7, these four well-known and well-loved verses in our series, Peace Under Pressure. And I highlight verses 4 through 7 because, you know, we go to those for encouragement. We go those for comfort. And as we've been seeing, sometimes you hit those verses and you're like, I'm more discouraged after reading them. I, I'm, I'm not comforted at all. I get more worried when I'm told, don't be anxious. Well, we're living, of course, in a sinful and fallen world, this time between the already and the not yet, the, the time between the first advent of Jesus and his promised return. And living in the tension of the already and not yet means living with all kinds of pressure. Pressure both foreign coming from the outside and pressure both and domestic coming up from the inside. But as we see in our short passage, the God of peace gives the peace of God to his people in the midst of pressure. Speaking of pressure, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, a church that he established in his second missionary journey when he heard the call and he went over from Asia into Europe. And by the time he's writing this letter in 61, 62 AD, he's writing it from a Roman prison. What that prison looked like, was it more like house arrest or was it a deep, dark dungeon? We don't know, but we do know Paul was restricted. He most likely was even chained at times to a Roman soldier. He's in prison, but he's writing this letter that is a letter, as you see, of deep friendship and affection and a letter of thanksgiving. It's really upon the occasion of the gift that Paul received. He's writing a thank you note. And we see that the theme of this thank you note, in addition to just giving thanks, we've been saying it's joy in the gospel because of the gospel. Joy, a form of joy is mentioned 20 times in gospel is mentioned six times. The actual word gospel. You can't sometimes make too much of kind of the appearance of a word, but when it appears six times in 110 verses, it's the highest concentration of the word gospel in any book of the Bible. Joy in the gospel because of the gospel. And we see that in how he greets the church and how he gives thanksgivings and offers prayer. And we see it and he explains the truth of the gospel, his relationship to the gospel and their relationship to the gospel. We see that theme of joy in the gospel because of the gospel and how he speaks about truth against error. Because the gospel is always threatened. There's the outside threats of persecution. There's the inside threats of legalism and license. The ditch on one side of the road or the ditch on the other side of the road. And here in our exhortations, and then we'll see it in thanksgivings and final greetings. Well, because this is the last time and we're looking at one verse, I want to spend a moment or two just reviewing where we've been so far. 
In the first three verses of chapter four, it was together for the gospel. We saw that being together and staying together for the gospel involves, among other things, standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord and helping one another in the Lord. And then in verse four, we saw with rejoice always, mission impossible. We saw that that mission was not only possible, but it's practical and it's most certainly a priority. And in verse five, holy moderation, we saw that reasonableness or moderation or gentleness, it's, it's hard to define, but we all know it when we, when we see it. And we're able to be reasonable and moderate and gentle because the Lord is at hand, both in time, he's coming, he's returning, but also in space. He's here right now with us by his spirit. And we see above all that we can be reasonable and moderate and gentle because that's who our savior is. As Paul even writes to the church in Corinth about the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. And we saw in verses six through seven, in peace through prayer, we, we saw that there is comprehensive prayer about anything and everything, but also incomprehensible peace. Peace that's not obtained through our strength, but through prayer. Peace that's obtained not through our strength, but through our weakness. And this call is both an invitation, this peace, and a gift, the gift of peace through prayer. And last week, for those of you that were here, I spent a few moments just addressing the fact that sometimes we go to these verses and the anxiety is still there and the restlessness is still there. And I spoke about asking ourselves, well, is it willful? Is it willfulness or is it weakness? Because it's, it's always helpful to remember that sin has corrupted everything. The spiritual, the material, the, the visible and the invisible. But we were reminded that when it comes to us being bruised reeds who are anxious and restless, Jesus doesn't break us. And when it comes to us being faintly burning wicks, Jesus doesn't snuff us out. And last week we looked at verse 8, a, a long verse, a long list. And what do you think about? What do you think about? Remember, that, that question is not asking for your opinion. What do you think about someone or something, but rather an evaluation in other words, what's on your mind? What do you think about? And we saw that if prayer is talking to God, then thinking is talking to yourself. And we saw that that list is representative. It's not exhaustive, but it is expansive. And that list, as you work your way through that list of whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, it is working at the level of our hearts. And that list helps to put the brakes on our thoughts, but also redirect them to what is true, 
What is honorable? Well, now we're here at verse 9, the last verse. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's not just a summary of kind of 1 through 8, but it, it can also seem to summarize the entire letter. You'll notice that as we move from verse 8 to verse 9, it's a movement from thinking about these things to practice these things. So we're going to look both at a narrow focus on 1 through 9, but also a broad focus on the entire letter. And we're going to unpack and explore this concluding exhortation by considering the professor, the practice, and the promise. The professor, that's Paul, the practice, the Christian life, and the promise, God's presence. The outline did not make it before the printing deadline. Sorry about that, but hopefully it's simple enough. The professor, the practice, and the promise. The professor, Paul. Now, when I said the professor, what's the first thing, really, that came to mind, right? Teacher, right? Who said Gilligan's Island, right? Um, the professor, all right? You imagine somebody in a coat and tie standing at a lectern in a curved, you know, college classroom. A professor, you know, you start out at assistant you're your part-time professor, assistant, then you get full professorship. When I think of professor now, I go, I go back to my days in, in, in seminary. My professors. I, I remember not only their teaching, but I remember their lives. I remember not only what they said from the lectern, but what they prayed. I remember what they did, how they acted. I, I saw their attitude. You know, I was, as I've told some folks, I was prepared for the rigor, the academic rigor of seminary. Now, when I say prepared, I was just, I knew that it was ahead. I wasn't prepared like it was going to be easy. It wasn't. But I was not prepared to see such godly, humble, gentle lives lived by my professors. Paul, why is he a professor? Well, first of all, he, he professes faith in Jesus. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life is, his, is changed. No wonder he can say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Saul, the Pharisee, became a new creation. He met the risen Christ. He professes faith in Jesus. So in one sense, all of us have made, who have made professions of faith are professors. But of course, Paul is a professor outwardly. Why? He, he's speaking, he's teaching, he, he's acting. Um, in fact, Paul in particular, as one of the apostles, he's called to proclaim, he's called to teach. And we have the apostolic writings, the scriptures. So let's first consider... Paul, the professor, what he taught. What he taught. Paul says, listen to me. Listen to me. You see, first and foremost, 
he, he's, he's teaching the gospel, right? We see it in Philippians. We see it in all of his writings. It, it's what Christ has done for you. It's, it's the good news of reconciliation between God and man. It's good news. He's teaching the gospel, what Christ has done for you in your place and on your behalf. And as a result, he's not only talking about the gospel, but he's got to talk about the Christian life, what you are called to do in response. And we'll talk about that as we move into practice in a moment. So what Paul taught, he's saying to the church then, and saying God through Paul is saying to the church now, listen to me. But there's also an aspect of how Paul lived. Not only what he taught, but how he lived. And he says, look like me. Look like me. Does that mean short? We think Paul is short. Does that mean have bad eyesight? We think he may have had bad eyesight. No, look like me as I follow Jesus. You follow me. Turn back to Philippians 3, 17. Sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. Sometimes it's not so hard to understand. Listen to verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Wow, that's like a double, double. Look at me, look at me. Look at me and look at others who have looked to me. Look at me as I'm looking to Jesus. Imitate me in having confidence in Christ. Confidence in the cross. Don't look to those who he says are enemies of the cross, who are preaching another gospel, who are mutilating the gospel. Listen to me and not just look at me, but, but look like me. You see, Paul, as a professor, is a teacher and an example. Listen to me and look like me. I want to stop and ask this question because we all have an answer to this question, but who's had the most influence in your life? Who's had the most influence? Not necessarily in the spiritual life, not necessarily as a Christian, but in general, who's had the most influence in your life? I think we may all be able to come up with one, two, or three people. And I would say that what unifies all these people is they're people who, who walk the talk, right? They, they talk and their walk aligns with their talk, right? I can think of the, the man who married Michelle and me and years later I buried him, Wayne Haddock in Virginia. Wayne was a great teacher. He had an unusual grasp for distilling the word of God into memorable expressions that still hang on to this day. But you know, those things would not have hung on to me had I not also seen it lived out in his life. His talk was reinforced by his walk and his walk was guided by his talk. Do any of us do this perfectly? Absolutely not, right? But you know those kind of people when you see them. 
Their walk and their talk does not have a big delta. That's for you, Dan. They don't have a big gap, a difference. There's an alignment. So Paul, the professor. You see, Paul wrote this note to the Philippian church not only to say thank you, but also to provide instruction on how the Christian life is to be lived. Um, That is the life of faith in Jesus Christ with one another in the world. So let's move from the professor, Paul, to the practice, the Christian life. Again, first and foremost, Paul wants his reader then and now to know that the Christian life is anchored and powered by the gospel. Remember what he says to the church in Corinth, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, right? That Christ died, was buried. Third day he rose again according to the scriptures of first importance. It was the gospel, the good news. And we saw in our study of Acts, that 72 week walk through Acts, we saw that any time the apostles preached the gospel. It was Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his life, his death, his resurrection. Paul knew that the Christian life is, first of all, anchored by the gospel. But he also knew that the, 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 the Christian life is powered by the gospel. When we see that clearly, when he writes the church in Rome, the gospel is the, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that salvation, as we know, has past, present, and future aspects. Scripture says we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's, it's the power behind our growth. It's, the, it's where everything comes back to. It's the anchor and the engine, as I like to say. And logically, if you think about a boat going full throttle and anchored at the same time, it's kind of an odd picture, isn't it? But that's the Christian life. We are anchored at the same time we're moving forward. The practice, the Christian life is anchored and powered by the gospel. And Paul in Philippians, as we will see, also wants his reader to know that the Christian life, you got to know the grammar. You got to know the logic. In other words, you've got to know the indicative and the imperative. Turn with me back to Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 13. Philippians 2, Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a good thing Paul continues with his thought. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think most of us have heard that expression. Um, It's a great one, right? Work out what God has worked in. Kids, this is super encouraging. We work out not based on our own effort, our own understanding, our own ingenuity, our own creativity, our own um, design. No, 
we work out what God has worked in. If I had learned that at an early age, it would have saved me some heartache. It would have saved frustration. Work out what God has worked in. It's the indicative and the imperative. You know, most of the time, Paul grounds, well, he always grounds the imperative, what we are called to do by the indicative, what he has done in Christ. Most of the time, it's indicative imperative, but sometimes it's imperative and then indicative. So don't, don't get frustrated if you run into the command before you, you find out the reason or the power behind it. Keep reading as we see in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. So he, he wants us to know kind of the grammar and the logic of the practice, the Christian life, but he also wants us to remember the perspective of the gospel, the perspective of the gospel. Because in the gospel, we look back and we look ahead. Uh, we look back to the cross, yes and amen, but we look ahead we, we, we look back to the cross. We don't look back to our performance, whether it's good or bad. We look back to Jesus' performance, but we also look ahead. We, we press on. Flip over to chapter 3, and I want to read verses 12 through 16. Beginning in verse 12. And, and, and as you hear these words, think of um, the practice the Christian life. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any, and if any, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. The gospel perspective. Look back to the cross don't look back at your performance, whether it's good and be haughty, whether it's bad and be in despair. Look back to the cross, but then look ahead to that prize. Look ahead, press on, press on. You know, practice makes perfect. Interesting what Paul says, right? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. You know, not in this life is perfection going to arrive. It will arrive, but, but not here. But I press on. I press on. So here in Philippians 4, 1 through 9, it, it's the practice of the Christian life. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Help one another in the Lord. Uh, rejoice, be reasonable, be moderate, be gentle. Don't be anxious. Instead, pray, be thankful. Think about these things. 
Now there's a promise that's associated with this practice. Practice these things. And the the idea, of course, is to do these things, is to um, continue to do them. It's not a one and done, but it's ongoing. Practice these things, and there's a promise associated with the practice. And it's the promise, of course, of God's presence. Let's think about for a moment the relationship between the practice and the promise. And what is the promise? And the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In one sense, the practice, therefore, is motivated by the promise. But not only that, but it is the arena and the atmosphere for the practice is the very presence of God. The practice is not taking place in isolation. The practice is not taking place just you by yourself reading God's word. It's in the company of God's people, but more than that, it's in, the, it's in the presence of God himself. And we've been saying every week about peace under pressure, that the God of peace, what, brings the peace of God, gives the peace of God. There's a movement from the peace of God at the beginning of verse 7 to the God of peace at the end of verse 9. Paul, four times, once here in Philippians, four times uses that description of God as the God of peace. He ends Romans 15, that chapter, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Why does he then go on to chapter 16? I haven't figured that out yet. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And then in Romans 16, maybe... He wanted to continue, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. The God of peace will destroy your greatest enemy. And we hear occasionally this benediction. Now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of peace. And then in a few minutes, you'll hear it as we hear it most often when we observe the Lord's Supper. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the God of peace. And here... What do we see in Philippians 4? That this God of peace will be with you. Will be with you. Because, my friends, that's the central promise of Scripture. God with and for His people. We heard it in the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 37. I will be their God and and they shall be my people. But if you really want to See it, it's in Exodus 6 and Leviticus 26 and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 2 Corinthians 6, Hebrews 8. 
And as scripture wraps to a conclusion in Revelation 21, we read in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The God of peace will be with you. Will be with you. Not far from you. Not running from you. Not tired of you. Frustrated by you. And gone. He will be with you. Forevermore. Is it any wonder that we read in Matthew 23, excuse me, Matthew 1, verse 23, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, the God of peace with us. So we've examined verse 9 by considering the professor, Paul, the practice, the Christian life, and the promise. The presence of God. Well, as we draw toward an end, I want us to now consider the professor who Paul learned from. The professor who Paul listened to. The professor who Paul looks at. In other words, who's the head professor, the chief professor, the chair of the department? Let's look at that professor for a moment and his practice and his promise. Of course, we're talking about Jesus and who is Jesus? He's a teacher. He's an example. He's a model. Do what I say and look at how I live. Uh, Scripture says in the Gospels, he came to teach and preach. He himself says, I came to be followed. If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We read in Acts about Jesus' ministry. He went around doing good. Peter, as I've said before, Peter gets it. Yeah, Christ has led, left us an example. We see Paul in Philippians 2 pointing to Jesus as an example when he wants the believers to be of the same mind. So he came to teach and preach. He came to be followed. Anything else? Well, he came, of course, to be a sacrifice. The one and only. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read these words of Jesus. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he's trying to instruct his disciples on what it means To not lord it over people, but to serve people. And he says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then he goes on, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're called to serve, and indeed we can serve. And when Jesus says, greater love is no one than this, that he laid out his life for his friends, we can even give our life. In one sense, for a friend. 
But we can't give our life as a ransom for many. We can't give our life as payment of a debt. He's a teacher. He's an example, a model. He's the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. Think with me for a moment about the promise of Jesus. You know, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. They all point to him in one way or another. And we hear these words that say, come to me and you'll find rest. Come to me and I'll never cast you out. And the God of peace will be with you forevermore. The promise of Jesus that we see in verse 9. His peace and his presence in the world, he tells his disciples at the last of his instruction, in the world you'll have trouble, but in me what will you have? Peace. And as he gives instructions to those who would follow him, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, Jesus is in the arena with his people. Walking with Jesus is the atmosphere in which we practice the Christian life. He's with us. He's for us. Paul is saying salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yes and amen. But he says, practice these things and Jesus, the God of peace, will be with you now and forevermore. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world filled with all kinds of pressure, pressure that we don't ask for and pressure that we ourselves create, we nonetheless have peace in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we have the objective peace, that we are now in a right relationship with you. He has done what we could never do. He's lived a perfect life of obedience. He's died a atoning, sacrificial death in our place for the rebellious life that we, we have lived. We are at peace with you, but we also have the subjective peace of just being with our brother, our savior, our friend. Oh, Father, we thank you that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, we have peace under pressure. We thank you, Father, that as we live out the Christian life, as we practice the Christian life, as we Practice these things. The God of peace, Jesus, will be with us now and forevermore. Amen.